Today I want to strengthen you as best I can from the scriptures in your prayerful petitions to the Lord for Scott. I've entitled the message today, Powerful Petitions, How to Pray for Scott. Because really my goal is twofold. One, I want to give you principles from scripture for how to ask God for things, how to make requests of of our Father. And that applies to anything, any need, any desire that you would bring before the Lord. But I also want them to immediately apply to our intercessions for Scott. For those of you who might not know, and perhaps maybe for some who are visiting with us, Pastor Scott Golicky suffered a hemorrhagic stroke a week ago Friday, which required surgery and stay in ICU and now a continued hospital stay as he continues to recover. And so while prayer is a way of life at Crossway, we are in these days especially a church in earnest prayer. It's paramount that we continue to ask God and that we ask rightly because we come to a God who hears our petitions and delights in responding. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, verse 9, Jesus says to his disciples, Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Jesus is saying, if you're fallen and have mixed motives and are subject to temptation and can act selfishly at times, wrongfully, but have this innate desire to love your children and provide for them and not be cruel to them, and when they ask for bread, ha ha, give them a stone, or if they ask for a fish, kind of wink and hand them a serpent. If even you who are evil, fallen, and frail... Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your father, who is not subject to temptation, who is perfect in every way, who is perfect in wisdom and love, and who is in heaven, how much more will he give good things to those who ask him? So I want to give you some practical steps then you can take in offering your petitions to God. Again, These are helpful for asking God all the time in our prayers, but they have immediate meaning for our prayers for Scott. So how to ask God in faith. And I know slide says how to ask God. It's really how to ask God in faith. What does it mean to come to God believing him and asking for something? In this case, specifically for Scott's recovery and well-being and wholeness. Number one, trust in God's integrity. Trust in God's integrity. Now it's time to go to your Bibles, James chapter 1. I do have the text up front, James chapter 1. I really want to focus on James chapter 1, verses 5 
through 8, but we need to know how James gets there. So we're going to begin in verse 2, James chapter 1, verse 2. These verses are familiar to us. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So James begins with this call to joy. When we meet, when we encounter or trip over, if you will, various trials, trials of various kinds. This means trials of every shape, every kind, and every color. Every small trials, big trials. Trials that last for a minute and trials that last for years. They are all various kinds of trials. And when you encounter those, you're to have joy, not because you're going through the trial, but because you know that it is the testing of your faith. And this word testing means refining. It does not mean testing to trip you up like a math test to see if you really know how to do the math and if you don't, you flunk. That's not what this testing means. This testing means a fire that is lit under a precious metal that then rise, uh, raises the, the impurities to the surface that are then scraped off. It is a purifying testing. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and you can see this chain. It produces steadfastness. Steadfastness has a full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So what this is doing to our faith and what it says about our faith, the condition of our faith, is that from scratch, our faith is lacking. It lacks something. It lacks wholeness. It's, it's fractured. It's incomplete. And God brings trials into our lives of every shape, color, and size to refine that faith, to make it whole. Now, verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Why wisdom? Why jump to wisdom? It almost sounds like James is changing subjects, but he's not. Because wisdom, of course, is uh, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, the skill by which life is lived and happiness is known, and fullness is known in life. That's what wisdom is. You read the book of Proverbs, and it is pursue wisdom, gain wisdom. But why? So that your life can be whole and happy before the Lord. So this wisdom is living life with skill, and it always has moral implications, Wisdom and righteousness go hand in hand. Folly and wickedness go hand in hand. So wisdom is a moral issue. It is wisdom that enables, watch this, it is wisdom that enables the believer to live by faith in the midst of trials. 
It is to see these trials of various kinds and to navigate life and live life rightly before God in the midst of them. That's what wisdom is here. It's to see through them to understand God's purpose in them. Not necessarily all of the details. God does not always give us all of the reasons why we encounter hardships. But it is what is revealed in verses 3 and 4 that somehow this testing of my faith is producing steadfastness. And it must have its full effect. How is that going to happen? The Lord is doing that, and I can respond to this hardship knowing that is true. That is wisdom. We know that his goal is to complete us or make us whole, to refine our faith. If you look at these difficulties and you say, I don't have the wisdom to see this or to believe it, then ask God for the wisdom. Ask God who gives generously with to all without reproach. This phrase, who gives generously to all without reproach, is actually a phrase that's one big adjective. It is that God is the giving generously to all without reproach God. That's who he is. In other words, this, this phrase is less about what God does, that he is a God who does this, and more about his character who he is. This is the kind of God he is. He is the kind of God who gives generously to all without reproach. This word generously literally means singly or whole in an undivided way. In other words, God is a God who gives in a single-minded or sincere way. Let me show you another passage where this same word is used. It's found in Luke chapter 11, verse 33. Jesus says this, No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. And what he means by that is that it is through your eyes that the light enters and it is that process which enables you to see, to perceive the reality around you. That's how your eye is the lamp. We think of a lamp as something that gives off light. But here the eye is the lamp in the sense that it lets the light in. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright. Notice that word. Full of light. Wholly bright. As when a lamp with its rays gives you light. If you look at that word healthy in verse 34, when your eye is healthy, it is the same word as generously in James chapter 1. If your eye is single, if it's whole, in other words, if your eye is not fractured or clouded, now this might make a little bit more sense to us who wear glasses, especially those of us who wear glasses and have children who tend to grab them 
and get smudges on them. Or maybe you've cracked a lens or you've gotten food on them or whatever it is or you're out in the rain and you can't see. That is an eye that is not single, that is not whole. Have you ever looked in a mirror that's cracked and broken? The image is distorted. You can't see accurately or through a window. It's what Jesus is talking about. If your eye is whole, single, sincere, then it allows light to pass through and there's no darkness. What is James saying about God? That this God who gives, gives in an unfractured way. That God does not call upon us, watch, he does not call upon us to come before him and ask for wisdom and dangle it out like the carrot we can never get to. That would be a God who is not whole or single or who lacks integrity. That he continues to promise us things but just strings us out as if to say, come on now, Believe me, trust in this promise takes a step up. <laughs> Got you to take a step. I tested you. Good job. Now, come on. Keep going for the carrot. That is not our God. He is the giving generously without reproach God, which means that there is integrity and wholeness without fracture or duplicity. God deals with us this way. And that is why he is worthy of coming before and asking for wisdom and asking for anything. And I believe James, when he talks about God's character here, he's going beyond just asking for the wisdom. He's talking about God's character in giving and how he gives Whenever we ask him, which is why we must, verse, verses 6 and 7, ask in faith with no doubting, doubting. He who doubts, this word means to differentiate or divide. So in other words, to doubt is really a division within us that causes wavering in our trust in God. It is to say this, that God is, instead of whole or single, that God is divided in how he deals with us. I know God says one thing, but he'll do another. To do so is to cast aspersions and accusations against God, if we pray that. That doubting says more about us, though, doesn't it? It's what doubting and saying, it's because we know we are that way. We look at God and we expect him to be duplicitous. We expect him to deal with us in a divided way. But that's our problem. That reveals something about us, which is what James talks about here then. The one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. There we go. This has to do with all of our prayers, all of our requests. 
He is a double-minded man and stable in all his ways. This word double-minded means two-souled. We have a phrase when we talk about somebody's duplicity, they are two-faced. They have one face in this context and say one thing, and over here, they have a different face. They say different things. Someone who is double-minded is two-souled, a spiritual schizophrenic who is fractured in their faith. That person is double-minded. They are two-souled. On the one hand, they praise God and they come before him as if he'll give them something, but over here they doubt and think wrongly of God's character by thinking that God is just playing some sort of game. That's double-mindedness. That's two-souledness. We must not ask that way. James reaffirms God's integrity down in verses 16 and 17. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect, there you go, perfect, the opposite of fractured, the opposite of incomplete. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God's motives, God's love for us is not fluctuating, going up and down like a roller coaster. That's us. <laughs> that's our love for God. That's our love for one another at times. But that's not God. He gives every good and perfect gift, and in him there is no variation or shadow due to change. There are no fractures in his character. And he reaffirms the power of such petitions in chapter 5, 16. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. We have every reason to come before a God who has absolute and unassailable integrity and expect and know that he will answer, that he will respond and that he is true to his word in doing so. So, first of all, trust in God's integrity. When you pray, when you make requests of him, when you pray for Scott, trust in God's integrity. Secondly, present your case before God's throne. Present your case before God's throne. By present your case, I mean argue. I mean, argue your case. Give God, in your prayers, give God the grounds for why you ask why you, what you are asking. Lord, I ask this, and here's why I ask this. J.I. Packer, in his book, Praying, tells us, we should lay before God, as part of our prayer, the reasons why we think that what we ask for is the best thing. That is, telling God why what we have asked for seems to us to be for the best in light of what we know God's own goals to be. 
In other words, if we know our God and we're in his word and we understand his mind how, as he's revealed it, then when we come before him, we can point to our request and we can point to what God has said about himself and his purposes in the world and we say, I'm making this request because you've said this. Because this is true about you. If you're wondering what that sounds like, let me give you some examples from Scripture. There are plenty. Psalm 6, which I read last week in our time together, verses 4 and 5. Turn, O Lord, and deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. There's a reason. Deliver my life for the sake of your steadfast love. You have said that you have loved me and that you are steadfast in it. And yet this is a difficulty I'm facing for the sake of your steadfast love that you've promised. Deliver my life. Verse 5, for in death there is no remembrance of you and Sheol who will give you praise. What is the psalmist saying? He's arguing. He's making a case. And he's saying, if I die and I go into the grave, who will give you praise? That's one less mouth on this planet who's giving you praise and glory. That's a reason he's giving for asking for deliverance. Do you hear him reasoning before God, making an appeal, presenting a case about Psalm 13? Another psalm I read last week, verses 3 and 4. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Do you hear his reasoning here? Answer me, light up my eyes, revive my life. I sleep the sleep of death. Why? Because if you don't, my enemy will say I've prevailed over him. My enemy, uh, my foes will rejoice because I am shaken. That reflects on you, God. Consider. Look and reason this out, O Lord, with me from the way I see it. Psalm 30, verses 8 through 10. I told you there's plenty. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. Psalm 27, 7 through 9. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, and I'll listen to how the psalmist uses before God, God's commands to him. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, O Lord, do I seek? You have commanded me to seek you. I am seeking you, have sought you, and am seeking you. Hide not your face from me. Why would you command me to seek you and me obey that command and follow you for you to only hide your face from me? Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. 
key words in the Psalms, when you want to hear the psalmist presenting a case before God, two key words, consider, consider my enemies, consider my condition, consider my weeping, consider that I'm almost dying. And the word for, for this is true, for you have said this, He is entering evidence for his petition. He is introducing reasons for why God should grant his request. The psalmists argued their cases before God. So did Job. In fact, nobody argued a case like Job did. Maybe no one has had more reason to argue a case like Job did. Job chapter 10 Listen to Job's arguments. I loathe my life. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. Does it seem good to you to oppress, to despise the work of your hands and favor the designs of the wicked? Have you eyes of flesh? Do you see as man sees? Are your days as the days of man or your years as a man's years that you seek out my iniquity and search for my sin, although you know that I am not guilty and there is no one to deliver me out of your hand? Your hands fashioned and made me and now you have destroyed me altogether. Remember that you have made me like clay and will you return me to the dust? Job is even audacious in his arguing. What about the prophet Habakkuk? And those of you who know Scott know that Habakkuk is one of his favorite books. Habakkuk chapter 1, verses, uh, beginning of verse 2. Now Habakkuk is looking at wickedness in the land of, of Israel and Judah And he is wondering why the Lord does not respond. So Habakkuk's complaint, his argument is one of justice. Where is justice? O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? And the picture here is that Habakkuk is cease an act of violence and injustice. And he's looking up at God and going, do you see that? Violence! Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Now, God answers Habakkuk in the next passage and he he says... I've got it covered, Habakkuk. I'm sending in the Babylonians, and they are going to wipe you out. They're going to wipe the people out, Judah. I am sending them. They are my instrument of judgment. Habakkuk complains again. Again, in chapter 1, verses 12 through 17, Habakkuk presents his case again. I'm not going to read it all. It's very similar, only his argument this time is, is really summed up in verse 13. 
You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Meaning, no, wait a second, I'm pleading for justice. I'm making a case for justice before you, O God. You're sending in the Babylonians who are more wicked to punish the wickedness I see among your people. How does that answer justice? He ends his argument in chapter 2, verse 1, by saying this. I will take my stand at the watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And what he means by this, I look out to see what he will say to me, how God will answer me, and how I will answer concerning my complaint. Because when God comes to answer my reasoned argument before him for justice when he comes, I will have to give an answer for why I have asked it and whether or not I'm justified in asking it. The conclusion of presenting our case before God's throne is to pray with audacity, to pray big, to never shy away from asking like a simple child for God to act and respond. You know, I love it. My kids are getting older, okay? I'm going to use them as an illustration again. But when they were younger, they didn't know the difference between asking me for a box of cereal and asking me uh, for a bicycle. Now, to me, that's hundreds of dollars difference. But to them, there's no difference. It's daddy. Dad, can I have the Cocoa Puffs? That's no different than saying, Dad, can I have a car? They don't know. They have no concept of the difference between the cost of a box of cereal and the cost of a vehicle. How beautiful is that? It's how God wants you to ask. That kind of boldness and audacity. So, when you pray for Scott's recovery... Pray for full recovery, okay? Don't pray for anything less than that. And I know that when you pray for full recovery, you can say, if it's your will. But don't make that just a tagline for something less than a full disclosure of your desire for Scott's full recovery. And we're gonna talk about praying according to the Lord's will now. Because as you present your case before God's throne, we also have to submit ourselves to God's best. Submit yourself to God's best. What I mean by this is that if we trust in God's integrity, if we have presented our case before him, argued it out like Job, argued it out like the psalmist, then we need to humble ourselves before his omniscience and his wisdom, the wisdom by which he rules over all the affairs of the world. We need to explicitly tell God that if he wills something different than what we are asking, we know it will be better than what we think is best. And that is really what we want him to do. We really want God to do what he knows is best. 
because he knows better than we do. Do you believe that? I can be hard. But this is heart work. And whether or not we can say these words to God and mean them tells us where our hearts really are. We have to remember that we don't always know what's best for us or what is best for others at times. Sometimes our motives are wrong, even if we don't know it. Not only that, but there is too much that we don't know. There is so much that is beyond our comprehension. And even if, even if we could manipulate God, or if somehow we could determine all things through the power of our prayers, could we really rule the world with wisdom? Can we really say that everything that we would ask and plead before God would be right and best? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? That's how God addresses Job at the end of the book. Here's the real test of our faith in God's goodness submitting ourselves to what he knows is best, even if it is different than what we ask of him. Sometimes I think we're, we're tempted to conclude that God does not hear or that God does not answer because sometimes his good answer, sometimes what is best for us is no or wait or Yes and no. <laughs> Sometimes part of what we ask, God says yes, but it's going to be in a different way than you're expecting it. Or part of what we ask is congruent with him, that lines up with him, and part of it doesn't. I'll just give you a little personal example from my own life. Many years ago, I was serving up here at a, at a Bible camp um, as a guest group coordinator, which meant that when the camp was not having its summer programs and having campers in, I was responsible for coordinating uh, guest groups, churches coming in, much like Lakeside does when it's not having its summer program, and running that, okay, out on the Kitsap Peninsula. And I lived by myself. I wasn't married yet. I lived by myself in a small house on the camp. So I lived out in the woods and uh, there was a lot of solitude out there, okay? And it was during that time that I began to, to do some discipleship with some young men at a local church. Um, I had had some experience in teaching at the camp there and leadership and discipleship, mostly with college-age guys. And the, the Lord began to work in my heart regarding doing that with my life full-time ministry. I was in college. I was not a Bible major. I was an English major. I graduated having no idea what I was going to do in my life, which is why I was at camp, because that's what you do when you know it. You go to camp, okay? <laughs> and um, I began to pray. 
the job changed. It required me to start doing some things I really wasn't comfortable with, not in an ethical way, but I, I needed to go out, I needed to sell the camp and these different kinds of things, which is not what I'd signed up for, it was not what the position was. And I began to really chafe in my job. And I began to ask the Lord, Lord, I think you're taking me seminary. Some other circumstances, conversations confirmed by other leaders in my life said, Lord, I think this is where you want me to go. You want me to go seminary. You want me to be trained for ministry. And I said, but I said to the Lord, I said, I will only go if you take me there. Because I don't want to assume this on myself. And I said, I have, I have a two-year commitment here at this camp. And I was about a year through it at the time. So I said, I have another year. I, I do not believe it's honoring to you for me to, uh, to violate my contract and my agreement. And I'm going to stay here. I'm going to continue in this, in this job till it's up. But if, Lord, you want to take me, then I'm going to, you have to do it. I'm going to let you do it. Within a week, my supervisor, the VP of camps, had called me into his office and said, why are you here? led to a conversation in which he said, look, I don't want you to stay because of your contract. I think the Lord wants to use you in a different way. That's where your heart is. We talked it through. Next thing I knew, within a couple of months, I was done, gone, and moving down to Southern California for seminary. I say all that to say that I didn't know if my, what I was praying was God's will I was submitting myself to commitments and doing what I knew was right, trying to maintain integrity in my life, and I was praying, reasoning it out, laying it before the Lord, and the Lord responded and answered in that way. We have to be ready to submit ourselves to what God knows is best, and sometimes that's beyond what we think it is, and sometimes it's lesser than what we think it is. Timothy Keller writes in his book, Prayer. When you struggle in prayer, you can come before God with the confidence that he is going to give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. He does care, and he loves you boundlessly. God is going to give us what we would have asked for if we had known everything that he knows. After all, even Jesus submitted himself to God's best, didn't he? Luke chapter 22, and Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. This is in the Garden of Gethsemane, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. There's a petition. There's a request. The Messiah, the Son of God, knows that he is about to be crucified. Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. There's Jesus submitting himself to God's best. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. What was he praying more earnestly than that? He was continuing to pray the same thing. I think it has to be. Jesus continues to say, remove this cup from me, 
please remove this cup from me, but not my will, your will. But please remove this cup from me, but not my will, your will. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So when Jesus asks, remove this cup from me, what is God's answer? No. And praise God. Because if his answer had been yes, we're not here today. By denying Jesus' request, God provided salvation for you and for me. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I think we question this promise sometimes because we want to hold God to our definition of what is good. Does Scott love God? Yes. Is he called according to God's purpose? Yes. Does God love Scott more than you do or we do? Yes. Does God always keep his promises? Yes. Submit to God's best. Lastly, rest in God's peace. Rest in God's peace. If we trust in God's integrity, that he is not dealing with us in some tricky way, that he will grant wisdom and that he will answer our requests, that he is whole, even if at times we are divided. And as we present our cases to him, reasoning out our petitions before him, and then submit to his best, submit to his answers, even if his answer feels like silence, then we can know his peace because we have cast our cares and our burdens and our anxieties on him who is wise and who is good and who will respond to our requests with what is best for us. Again, Timothy Keller says this. We can leave our concerns with God knowing that he will hear them and act on them when and as is best. The prayer that says, thy will be done, is a prayer of petition in which the needs and concerns that burden us are prayed into the hands of God. I love that phrase. They are prayed into the hands of God. So our souls do not go weighed down. There is a peace and confidence that comes from such praying that cannot be experienced any other way. So rest in God's peace as you continue to pray. So really, we leave this morning where we began last week, Philippians chapter 4. The Lord is at hand. He's near. Do not be anxious about anything, 
but in everything by prayer and supplication. It's another word for petition. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Let them be made known like a child. Simplicity. Knowing that he is a single-minded God toward us. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's the promise. That's the promise of peace. And it comes into action when we have in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving made our requests known to God. So persevere in your petitions. Do not give up. And let us take our stand at the watch post and station ourselves on the tower and look out to see what the Lord will answer us.